Chapter Thirty Two of Arema. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Dodge. Arema by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter Thirty Two. At Home. Some of the miserable, and I might say strange things which had befallen me from time to time unseasonably now began to force their remembrance upon me such dark figures always seem to make the most of a nervous moment when solid reason yields to fluttering fear and small misgivings there anybody seems to lie as a stranded sailor lies at the foot of a perpendicular cliff of most inhuman humanity with all the world frowning down over the crest, and no one to throw a rope down. Often and often had I felt this want of any one to help me, but the only way out of it seemed to be to do my best to help myself. Even now I had little hope, having been so often dashed and knowing that my father's cousin possessed no share of my father's strength. He might, at the utmost, give good advice and help me with kind feeling. But if he wanted to do more, surely he might have tried ere now. But my thoughts about this were cut short by a message that he would be glad to see me, and I followed the servant to the library. Here I found Lord Castlewood sitting in a high-backed chair, uncushioned and uncomfortable. When he saw me near him, he got up and took my hand and looked at me and I was pleased to find his face well-meaning, brave, and generous. But even to rise from his chair was plainly no small effort to him, and he leaned upon a staff or crutch as he offered me a small white hand. "'Miss Castlewood,' he said, with a very weak yet clear and silvery voice, "'for many years I have longed in vain and sought in vain to hear of you.' I have not escaped all self-reproach, though my sense of want and energy, yet, such as I am, I have done my best, or do my best to think so. I am sure you have, I replied, without thinking, knowing his kindness to my father, and feeling the shame of my own hot words to Mr. Shovelin about him. I owe you more gratitude than I can tell for your goodness to my dear father. I am not come now to trouble you, but because it was my duty. While I was speaking, he managed to lead me, feebly as himself could walk, to a deep chair for reading or some such use, whereof I have had few chances, and in every step and word and gesture I recognized that foreign grace which true-born Britons are proud to despise on both sides of the Atlantic and being in the light i watched him well because i am not a foreigner in the clear summer light of the westering sun which is better for accurate uses than the radiance of the morning i saw a firm calm face which might in good health have been powerful a face which might be called the moonlight image of my father's i could not help turning away to cry and suspicion fled forever. 
"'My dear young cousin,' he said, as soon as I was fit to speak to, "'your father trusted me, and so must you. "'You may think that I have forgotten you, "'or done very little to find you out. "'It was no indifference, no forgetfulness. "'I have not been able to work myself, "'and I have had very deep trouble of my own.' "'He leaned on his staff and looked down at me, "'for I had sat down when thus overcome, "'and I knew that the forehead and eyes "'were those of a learned and intellectual man. "'How I knew this, it was impossible to say.' for I never had met with such a character as this, unless it were the Abbey of Fletchon, when I was only fourteen years old, and valued his great skill at spinning a top tenfold more than all his deep learning. Lord Castlewood had long, silky hair falling in curls of silver-gray upon either side of his beautiful forehead, and the gaze of his soft eyes was sad, gentle, yet penetrating. Weak health and almost constant pain had chastened his delicate features to an expression almost feminine, though firm, thin lips and rigid lines showed masculine will and fortitude. And when he spoke of his trouble, which perhaps he would not have done except for consolation's sake, I knew that he meant something even more grievous than bodily anguish. It is hard, he said, that you, so young and healthy and full of high spirit as you are, unless your face belies you, should begin the best years of your life, as common opinion puts such things, in a cloud of gloom and shame. There is no shame at all, I answered, and if there is gloom, I am used to that. And so was my father for years and years. What is my trouble compared with his? Your trouble is nothing when compared with his, so far as regards the mere weight of it. But he was a strong man to carry his load, and you are a young and sensitive woman. The burden may be even worse for you. Now tell me all about yourself, and what has brought you to me. His voice was so quiet and soothing that I seemed to rest beneath it. He had not spoken once of religion or the will of God nor plied me at all with all those pious allusions which even to the reverent mind are like illusions when so urged lord castlewood had too deep a sense of the will of god to know what it is and he looked at me wistfully as one who might have worse experience of it falling happily under his influence as his clear kind eyes met mine i told him everything i could think of about my father and myself and all i wanted to do next and how my heart and soul were set upon getting to the bottom of everything and while i spoke with spirit or softness or i fear sometimes with hate i could not help seeing that he was surprised but not wholly displeased with my energy and then when all was exhausted came the old question i had heard so often and found so hard to answer and what do you propose to do next, Arema? To go to the very place itself, I said, speaking strongly under challenge, though quite unresolved about such a thing before. To live in the house where my father lived, and my mother and all of the family died. 
and from day to day to search every corner and fish up every bit of evidence until i get hold of the true man at last of the villain who did it who did it and left my father and all the rest of us to be condemned and die for it erema replied my cousin as he had told me now to call him you are too impetuous for such work and it is wholly unfit for you for such a task persons of trained sagacity and keen observation are needed and after all these eighteen years or nearly nineteen now it must be there cannot be anything to discover there but if i like may i go there cousin if only to satisfy my own mind i am miserable now at bruntsea and sir montague hockin wears me out sir montague hockin lord castlewood exclaimed why did you not tell me that he was there wherever he is you should not be oh i forgot to speak of him he does not live there but is continually to and fro for bathing or fishing or rabbit shooting or any other pretext and he makes the place very unpleasant to me kind as the major and mrs hockin are because i can never make him out at all do not try to do so my cousin answered looking at me earnestly be content to know nothing of him my dear if you can put up with a very dull house and a host who is even duller come here and live with me as your father would have wished and as i your nearest relative now ask and beg of you that was wonderfully kind and for a moment i felt tempted lord castlewood being an elderly man and as the head of our family my natural protector there could be nothing wrong and there might be much that was good in such an easy arrangement but on the other hand it seemed to me that after this my work would languish living in comfort and prosperity under the roof of my forefathers beyond any doubt i should begin to fall into habits of luxury and to take to the love of literature which i knew to be latent within me to lose the clear strong practical sense of the duty for which i the last of seven was spared and in some measure perhaps by wanderings and by hardships fitted and then i thought of my host's weak health continual pain the signs of which were hardly repressed even while he was speaking and probably also his secluded life was it fair to force him by virtue of his inborn kindness and courtesy to come out of his privileges and deal with me who could not be altogether in any place a mere nobody and so i refused his offer i am very much obliged to you indeed i said but i think you might be sorry for it i will come and stop with you every now and then when your health is better and you ask me but to live here altogether would not do i should like it too well and do nothing else perhaps you are right he replied with the air of one who cares little for anything which is to me the most melancholy thing and worse than any distress almost you are very young my dear and years should be allowed to pass before you know what full-grown sorrow is you have had enough for your age of it you had better not live in this house it is not a house for cheerfulness then 
"'If I must neither live here nor at Bruntsea,' I asked, with sudden remonstrance, feeling as if everybody desired to be quit of me or to worry me. "'To what place in all the world am I to go, unless it is back to America? I will go at once to Shoxford and take lodgings of my own.' "'Perhaps you had better wait a little while,' Lord Castlewood answered gently, "'although I would much rather have you at Shoxford than where you are at present. "'But please to remember, my good Arema, that you cannot go to Shoxford all alone. "'I have a most faithful and trusty man, the one who opened the door to you. "'He has been here before his remembrance. "'He disdains me still, as compared with your father.' Will you have him to superintend you? I scarcely see how you can do any good. But if you do go, you must go openly, and as your father's daughter. I have no intention whatever of going in any other way, Lord Castlewood. But perhaps, I continued, it would be as well to make as little stir as possible. Of an English village I know nothing but the little I have seen at Bruntsea but there they make a very great fuss about any one who comes down with a manservant. To be sure, replied my cousin with a smile, they would not be true Britons otherwise. Perhaps you would do better without Stixon, but of course you must not go alone. Could you by any means persuade your old nurse Betsy to go with you? How good of you to think of it, and how wise you are! I really could not help saying, as I gazed at his delicate and noble face. I am sure that if Betsy can come, she will, though, of course, she must be compensated well for the waste all her lodgers will make of it. They are very wicked, and eat most dreadfully if she even takes one day's holiday. What do you think they even do? She has told me with tears in her eyes of it. They are all allowed a pat of butter, a penny roll, and two sardines for breakfast. No sooner than they know her back is turned. Irema, cried my cousin with some surprise, and being so recalled, I was ashamed. But I never could help taking interest in the very little things indeed, until my own common sense, or someone else, came to tell me what a child I was. However, I do believe that Uncle Sam liked me all the better for this fault. "'My dear, I do not mean to blame you,' Lord Castlewood said most kindly. "'It must be a great relief for you to look on at other people. "'But tell me, or rather since you have told me almost everything you know, "'let me, if only in one way that I can help you, help you at least in that way.' "'Knowing that he must mean money, I declined, from no false pride, "'but a set resolve to work out my work, if possible.' through my own resources. But I promised to apply to him at once, if scarcity should again befall me, as had happened lately. Then I longed to ask him why he seemed to have such a low opinion of Sir Montague Hawken. That question, however, I feared to put, because it might not be a proper one, and also because my cousin had spoken in a very strange tone, as if of some private dislike or reserve on that subject. Moreover, it was too evident that I had tried his courtesy long enough. From time to time pale shades of bodily pain, and then hot flushes had flitted across his face, like clouds on a windy summer evening, and more than once he had glanced at the timepiece, 
not to hurry me, but as if he dreaded its announcements. It was a beautiful clock, and struck with a silvery sound every quarter of an hour. And now, as I rose up to say good-bye to catch my evening train, it struck a quarter to five, and my cousin stood up with his weight upon his staff, and looked at me with an inexpressible depth of weary misery. "'I have only a few minutes left,' he said, "'during which I can say anything. My time is divided into two sad parts, the time when I am capable of very little, and the time when I am capable of nothing, and the latter part is twice the length of the other. For sixteen hours of every day, far better had I be dead than living.' so far as our own little insolence may judge. But I speak of it only to excuse bad manners, and perhaps I show worse by doing so. I shall not be able to see you again until tomorrow morning. Do not go, they will arrange all that. Send a note to Major Hawken by Stixon's boy. Stixon and Mrs. Price will see to your comfort, if those who are free from pain may require other comfort. Forgive me, I did not mean to be rude. Sometimes I cannot help giving away. Less enviable than the poorest slave, Lord Castlewood sank upon his hard, stiff chair, and straightened his long, narrow hands upon his knees, and set his thin lips in a straight blue line. Each hand was as rigid as the ivory handle of an umbrella or walking stick, and his lips were like clamped wire. This was his regular way of preparing for the onset of night, so that no grimace, no cry, no moan or other token of fierce agony should be wrung from him. "'My lord will catch it stiff tonight,' said Mr. Stixon, who came as I rang, and then led me away to the drawing-room. "'He always have it ten times worse after any talkin' or anything to upset him like, and then so, Miss, excuse a humble servant,' Did I understand from him that you was the captain's own daughter? Yes, but surely your master wants you. He is in such dreadful pain. Do please to go to him and do something. There is nothing to be done, miss, Stixon answered with calm resignation. He is bound to stay so for sixteen hours, and then he eases off again. But bless my heart, miss, excuse me in your presence. His lordship is thoroughly used to it. It is my certain knowledge that for seven years now he has never had seven minutes free from pain. Seven minutes, all of a heap, I mean. Some do say, miss, that as the Lord doeth everything according to his righteousness, that the reason is not very far to seek. I asked him what he meant, though I ought perhaps to have put a stop to his loquacity, and he pretended not to hear, which made me ask him all the more. A better man never lived than my lord, he answered, with a little shock at my misprison. But it has been said among censorious persons that nobody ever had no luck, as came in suddenly to a property and a high state of life on top of the heads of a family of seven. What a poor superstition, I cried, though I was not quite sure of its being a wicked one. But... "'What is your master's malady, Stixon? "'Surely there might be something done to relieve his violent pain, "'even though there is no real cure for it?' "'No, miss, nothing can be done. 
The doctors have exhausted themselves. They tried this and that and the other, but nature only flew worse against them. Tis a thing as was never heard of till the Constitution was knocked on the head to pieces by the Reform Bill. And though they couldn't cure it, done what they could do, miss, they discovered a very good name for it. They christened it the New Rager. End of chapter 32